Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott, and welcome back to yet another exciting edition of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. My guests today are one of the most important and successful indie rock bands, Alt-J. Formed in Leeds, England in 2007, their debut album won a Mercury Prize, and their second was nominated for a Grammy. They have sold millions of records, and their songs have been streamed over two billion times. They're selling out massive venues all over the world. It's been about five years since their last record. We'll dig into what took so long, what's in store for the year ahead. We're going to dive into their history, talk about their new record, The Dream, and the upcoming tour. We are joined today by lead singer Joe Newman and keyboard player Gus Unger. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots' tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out, at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Welcome back to yet another exciting episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. I'm joined today by the members of Alt-J, lead singer Joe Newman and keyboard player Gus Unger. How are you guys? Very well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm glad we got to do this again. I know we had a little bit of a mishap yesterday, but I'm glad we got to make this happen. So oh, thanks for yes. being here, both of you. Yeah, lovely to be here. It's funny, Joe, we were talking about, me and Gus were talking about if we had landlines, right? like we used to use, it would have been fine. But, you know, we all have these cell phones or we're trying to text each other. Nobody hears it. It's on silent. So we we actually might send a hand. Me and Gus might bring back the landline. I don't know. If you, if you I like the idea of the landline, that really long extension cord that goes around the kitchen. Um, I, 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 I like that. Yeah. <laughs> we might do that. Are you guys fans, by the way, of uh, interviews and podcasts? It's funny, Gus. I was researching that maybe an oyster podcast or a cricket podcast oh, yeah. could be in your future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the Oyster podcast was it was a great idea. Unfortunately, I, I sort of gradually came to the conclusion that I was actually allergic to oysters, but um, which would make it difficult to be the host of an Oyster podcast. But, you know, never say never. I think it would make it exciting, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, it's very niche, but you know what? It could work. I feel like niche works these days. It's funny, Joe, because you're you're a huge fan of my favorite murder, I I believe, right? I am. Yeah, that's funny. And and it's almost like a recurring theme in your music, too. And we'll get into that. I want to talk about the new record and the tour and your history, obviously. But, you know, it it is interesting when you think about the way that you've written for so long and and the themes that prevail in your music. So my favorite murder actually fits right into everything we're going to get into. Right. Right. Yeah. But let's, but let's get into it. If you don't mind, take me back to the beginning. Uh, I'd love to kind of know how you guys met. I know that you met at university back in Union Leeds, to my knowledge. And, and uh, just tell me about it, like 2007. Take me back to when you guys met, how you met, how you grew up. I was, um, we, Joe and I were, were in the same halls of residence at university, which is basically, you know, I suppose you'd call it a dorm in America. And um, we... We, we met at a party. I think it was the first night we all got we got dropped off by our parents in the afternoon. And then like sort of the, 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 the most confident people who who sort of um, sort of decided to throw parties that evening. And Joe and I attended the party. And um, I think it was quite by chance that you even came along to that yeah. party, wasn't it, Joe? Yeah, it was. I um, I was with um, my um, I, the flatmate I'd met that day and already we had kind of unconsciously um come to the conclusion that we don't we didn't have much in common and it was like this kind of elephant in the room and i i was like i didn't know anyone at university so i was like this was like the first day my dad had literally dropped me off that day and i and and i think her father had done the same and she was like i don't think this is the halls that i was meant to be in and i was like i was like okay she was like i don't know what to do but do you want to go out? And I was like, okay, we can go out. I, I, and she was like, do you know where the campus is? I was like, no. So we, we, we literally just left our halls of residence and started walking up the road. And this guy, I think he was called Mikey, from the top window of our halls that we were living in was like, do you want to come up and like ha- come up to this party that I'm just hosting? And we looked at each other and we're like, okay. And so we went upstairs and uh, I quickly met Gus in the kitchen and uh, we talked for the rest of the evening, I think. And it was friends first, right? I mean, music was sort of an afterthought for you. I guess the friendship is for and you met Tom later on, right? And you guys all seemed to meet up in college and music, I guess, was not the first thing on your mind when you met. It was really about the friendship, right? Yeah, exactly. I think Joe came to university with with the idea of forming a band there. I think that was part of your kind of reasons for coming to art school at all. But yeah, I think we we sort of spent the first year kind of sussing each other out as people and um, established that we got on well, we made each other laugh and we had stuff in common. And then we kind of got the band going in earnest at the beginning of our second year once we were very comfortable with each other, which I think was a good thing, actually, because it, it does involve it's quite... Um, I find playing music in front of people like in a kind of one-on-one setting quite embarrassing. It's almost like taking your clothes off or something, you know, you, you need to feel quite comfortable with that person to yeah. do it. And Definitely. I think had, had we had the day after that party, Joe, you know, you, you know, called me and said, come over to my room. I want to show you some songs I've been writing. I think it would have been incredibly embarrassing and awkward and we might yeah. well have just gone, that was awful. I can't, let's never do that again. And you were like, you- can you put your clothes back on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you both grow up in musical families? Was it classic rock that you were exposed to? Obviously the Zeppelins, the Floyds, or, or was it listening to music? Obviously some would think it would be Joy Division and, and obviously the darker side of music, but what was it that you were exposed to musically when you when you were growing up? Well, I think you kind of have different, um, there are different exposure points um, in sort of your, your young life. You know, 
the 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 first the first sort of exposure to music is really what your parents are listening to and so for me that was um that was like Jimi hendrix the who led zeppelin um and then you had like jeff buckley and um you had um you know uh all of the laurel canyon kind of groups and um then my dad was a massive fan of like Eva Cassidy and Elvis Costello, the Beatles. And so you, you kind of, ex- that's your first, that's the first exposure site. And then you go into your friendship groups and then you start building like, like foundations there. And as you grow into being a teenager, you start discovering music. And for me, that was stuff that my friend's brothers used to listen to, which was English hip hop and um, American kind of early 90s West Coast hip hop. And so that was another exposure site where um, uh, I, I kind of really enjoyed what I was listening to. Now, was that like the streets and Skepta and things like that on, on the British hip hop side? So of it was, yeah, it was like, it was kind of like bands like For Life Cypher and the streets were involved in that, yeah, for sure. Um, Skepta a little bit um, and not actually not Skepta sorry um and then you had Wiley um and then um you know uh Brain Tax a lot of a lot of just like small underground artists that um you know are kind of like the bedrock of what British hip-hop was in the early 2000s yeah yeah I could probably do a whole podcast on how great Jeff Buckley was uh, one of the greatest singers ever. So that, that's another episode, which we, we will definitely get to one day. But Gus, yeah. were you exposed to the same kind of music or was it different, you know? You Com- completely, to- completely different. Yeah, I grew up um, with much more of a classical music um, education and upbringing. So I was, I was like a, I was a chorister in the, my local cathedral. So I was sort of for four years of my childhood singing in the cathedral every day, doing like church services and stuff. And then learning on the, on the side I was learning the piano having singing lessons having oboe lessons and then my mum's family was more into like English folk traditional English folk so kind of just like singing folk songs really and I suppose if you've ever heard of like the copper family or that kind of thing um so that was another sort of part of my musical education but then and then you know when I was a teenager I was more into like kind of indie indie rock and the whole mid-noughties British indie scene um but yeah, I think it was kind of great that when Joe and I met, you know, we sort of like we actually came from completely different corners and, you know, sort of like taught each other in a way, I think. And actually, you know, work, if, if I think if we if we'd had too much in common musically, I don't know if the band would have worked so well. I think it's quite important that and then Tom, you know, Tom is Tom's like a real was like a real heavy metal guy. And that was pretty much all he listened to and all he'd ever played. So I was going to say, not even it, metal. It sounds like death metal he was into. Yeah. Right? Which is yeah. Uh, so the, the extreme. I'm not an expert. No. <laughs> He he kind of loved um, all sorts of um, categories of metal, like industrial metal, death metal, black metal, um, grind. Tech metal, grind. It was like loads of stuff, and like all bands of 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 that Gus and I had never heard of. Um, but you know, we like we kind of bonded. For me, I bonded with Tom over like. Um, Lamb of God. I really, I, I quite like Lamb of God at, um, at, in, in 2007. Um, and, but then as a group, I think the blanket that kind of kept us warm creatively was Radiohead. <laughs> oh, I don't use analogy there, but yeah. Um, yeah. So we kind of, we all discovered that I'd been listening to Radiohead for a long, long time before university. 
Tom discovered Radiohead at university. And I believe, Gus, you were a kind of, uh, you dipped in and out of Radiohead, maybe? Yeah, I was a latecomer to Radiohead. And um, I think, yeah, but definitely being around you guys really, really made me realise um, how much I'd been missing. And uh, I, I did my best to, to catch up. We were really working as a group, working on songs at the time In Rainbows came out. So yeah. I think that album has had a, made sort of was a catalyst in us kind of discovering um, a pathway that we could all go down as, as, as different, um, as different uh, musicians with different musical backgrounds, but we could, we kind of followed that um, route. And uh, it was, yeah, it's a, it was a huge, huge uh, influence on us, I think, at the time. It's interesting. I think that you guys even used GarageBand initially when you started making music. And I love the story how Tom, your drummer, would come over and just bring a snare and then bring a tom and then bring a bongo and obviously piecemealing it together. And ultimately it led to that, it's, you know, the sound and, and, you know, the idea that the drums are not meant to be overbearing and almost minimalist in your music, mm-hmm. but, but yet it works so well. And, and I guess I, I think back to Radiohead and their use of you know, rhythm and what they've done, they were so innovative, what they were doing, almost hauntingly so. So do you think that had a lot of the effects, the fact that you couldn't play so loud when you started getting together in these dorm rooms, right? It actually, it sort of helped shape the sound of the music in a way. 100%, yeah. I mean, I think the sound was was dictated in, in so many ways by our by our practical circumstances, both, both the, yeah, the volume thing, Tom having these kind of like minimal drums, you know, he he, he pretty much stopped bothering to bring more drum stuff after about three weeks. So he was just okay. left with, you know, a few things. And I had this keyboard that Joe had somehow got his hands on that was a sort of secondary school, all in one sort of one-stop shop Yamaha kind of um, sort of thing, a cheap sort of kid's Yamaha keyboard. And you had an acoustic guitar, didn't you, Joe, which your dad had sort of lent you. Yeah. Um, and I think just somehow just that was those material circumstances, I think, really were influential on our sound. And, you know, we developed this kind of like trip hoppy, folky sort of electronic thing going on, which, you know, we've obviously, you know, so much has changed since then. But I still think that that, that, that fundamentally did shape what kind of band we ended up being. And you end up meeting Gwil. You, you guys form this band, you start writing music together. Uh, and it's interesting, Joe, I mean, given the lyrical content and the fact that a lot of the music sort of seemed to focus on death and tragedy and love, was it that as a child you had a lot of these experiences growing up or was it just your fascination with, you know, obviously the occult or, or death in yeah. a way? <laughs> what was it that, that sort of led you to write in this way? Yeah, it was. it's definitely the latter. I mean, I, I, I've come from a wonderful, stable upbringing and, and, and have avoided, you know, kind of the bereavement um uh, like close family bereavement so it, it really came from a fascination with the darker side of the human condition and i kind of like uh, i think university um helps you reshape your critical thinking and uh your voice as a as an artist and you realize or quickly subscribe to the the, the idea that 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 nothing should be off limits when you're when you're creating work, um, subject material that is, and um, you 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 talk about what moves you, and often what moves me is the things I fear most, which is the idea of losing loved ones. Um, I think that kind of is a theme that's travelled across the uh, history of our output. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, obviously it worked so well for you guys and obviously it's a formula that 
seemed to really resonate with a lot of people. At a certain point, you guys moved to Cambridge. Um, I don't know if Cambridge is a hotbed of uh, musicality and, and if there's a lot of record labels there and whatnot, but what made you move from university to Cambridge? Why not just move straight into town and start to hit the club scene and start to perform? I think that we actually wanted to be somewhere that was not so distracting. You know, we, we talked about moving to London. By this point, we had a manager and we had a couple of other people, you know, working for us, a booking agent and stuff. But, you know, the, the temptation was to move to London. But I think we just thought, let's be closer to London, but actually stay away from the distractions of, of London. And, you know, London can be a very brutal place. And actually, you know, you, you, you move there, it's expensive to live there. So, you know, we probably would have had to get jobs like, I don't know, as waiters or something. And, you know, next thing you know, you've got no time to do the band because you're just so exhausted from your waiting job or your bar job. And I think actually, you know, so we moved to Cambridge, we found ourselves a little two bedroom house that we all squeezed into together. We, we uh, signed on, as we say here, which means we sort of, we sort of signed up for a weekly check from the government of, um, I think it was about 60 pounds. Um, plus it, it paid, they paid our rent which was very helpful. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of knuckled down and just like did brand band practice every day. And um, I think it was, you know, it was really good. I think Cambridge now, I think actually has a bit more of an exciting music scene. I think there's a few bands coming out of there now, like um, what are they called? Black Country, New Road. I think they're from Cambridge, quite an exciting, but you know, when we were there, I mean, you know, very much nothing going on, I would say. Would you agree, Joe? Um, yeah, apart from pints, drinking pints. Yeah, yeah there wasn't much. <laughs> Well, obviously, we all know, we all know Manchester, right? But I just never really think of Cambridge as, as a hotbed of uh, music. But th at that point, had you had the name, or were you still going by the films, or where was the name at in this process here? We were all changed. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure yeah. we changed changed to films when we were in Leeds because we were we were playing at a festival called Live at Leeds when we were called Films, and that was where the whole confusion arose. And we sort of decided to change our name after that because we got mixed up with another band called um, the Films, uh, and. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to look back on that period because it was, in a way, it was a very brief time in our lives. And actually, you know, we moved to Cambridge, I think, in like August 2011 would have been, I think, Joe. And we yeah. then by November, we'd signed a record deal. And then by the beginning of 2012, we were off on tour. And, you know, that was in a way the beginning of our like, well, that was the beginning of our big year when everything just changed and blew up. And by the end of 2012, we were kind of essentially famous. But at the time it was like it was a very it felt like a very long time didn't it living in that house together and rationing yeah. food and giving each other haircuts and just sort of <laughs> generally like it was quite yeah. quite a crazy time romantic yeah. when you look back on it but actually quite quite difficult at the time who was actually the hair cutter in the band was there one of you that was the one giving the haircuts or something or... there's a picture of Gwil cutting my hair who's the ex-member of the band and I think we, I think we also, Gwil's partner at the time, she would just cut a hole in a, in a, a, a bin bag. Do you call it refuse, refuse sack in America? I don't even know what that is. I'm not, I feel like, like a trash bag. Trash bag. A trash bag. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Bag. So, trash bag. Uh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you cut a little hole in the trash bag and you just pop your head through. Oh, right. And then okay. In the head. It's like. <laughs> It was just brutal. But, we used to uh, have this machine in America called the Flowbee, and it was like a vacuum cleaner for your, to cut hair. And they sold wow. it as like an infomercial. So you would just, I don't know, had these settings and basically like a hair vacuum. So I never bought wow. one, but uh, it seems like that would have been a good thing for you guys. But it's funny, Joe, you, your voice is so distinct and obviously so incredible. I mean, how did you find your voice early on? Were you sort of experimenting? I know that there's, I, I heard that there was sort of a way for you to avoid hurting your throat initially and you were sort of a little bit reluctant to sing in front of people right 
Yeah, I um it's it's such a, as as to go back to what Gus was saying, it's such a personal um uh process sort of revealing your voice to people because you're you're it's actually quite vulnerable um uh, of, uh you know your vulnerability is high because people are watching you use your voice like an instrument and you don't quite you don't yet know how to use it confidently so you have to go through these stages of just sort of like exhibiting yourself and um it's really it was really scary and and so you know for a long time i'd always been curious about singing to play to the guitar me playing the guitar um but I wanted to do it privately because I just wasn't ready to to sort of like put myself on show like that. But then when I went to university, I was like, oh, you know, this is a, it's now or never, you know, this is a new place. Geographically, you don't know Leeds at all. You don't know anyone going to Leeds. You're going to be making friends. You're going to be meeting, um, you know, musicians. You're going to be meeting artists. And 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 if you're if you're not going to take that leap of faith now, then when are you going to do it? So it was really, uh, it was really quite a, you had to, there's a certain fearlessness that you had to um, act on. And so I did that. And uh, I found that first my voice was hit, hitting the kind of late noughties. You, we called it mockney, mm. which is like mock cockney accent. Okay. And a lot of people used to sing like, still do, they kind of would sing like that where they would sound very British and very um, Londonized. And uh, it was it was just the style at the time. Is that and, like uh, the Happy Mondays or one of those bands that had a very thick, I'm would, trying to think of a band. I would, would, well, they, I would, they were a Manchester band, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, Kate Nash. Like the, the, the Maccabees, Kate Nash, Jack Pinate. It's okay. kind of like, yeah, like I'm from London kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and, um, we're going deep into uh, the Cockney accent. <laughs> but, um, it, so I did that for a while and um, it, you know, it was, I think it was a way of kind of uh, that, uh, that the affectation was there to protect myself from revealing maybe a voice that I didn't quite know how to use yet. Um, and then the more I started singing to Gwil and the more I started singing in the band, the more comfortable I became because everyone was excited by the songs we were writing and and no, at no point did someone say we should think about bringing a singer in um which is something that I suggested at some point I think Gus was like no this is you, you're 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 sharpening this tool that you're using at the moment and you should keep working on it so I did and so even the first album I wasn't confident with my voice mm. but um there, there was no better singer to 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 sing what I was writing, so I uh, I kept with it. And then by the second album, after a success, it gave me a lot of confidence. And I think that confidence is kind of much like an arrow who's kind of shot through the um, the our discography to date, and actually has kind of sort of like at an angle has gone up and up. And my my confidence has built, and I've. I, I now know how to use my voice and I have a good range and I've got a versatile um, uh, kind of uh, voice in terms of what I can do with it. And I, and I'm utilizing it now. So I actually really feel comfortable with my voice more than I ever have been before. It's interesting. I was listening to some of your early demos yesterday and I was hearing how you were finding that falsetto and, and some of the first songs you recorded, because there's some stuff online when you can hear that you're actually finding that, 
intonation and, and obviously that the falsetto voice that you're so well known for and it's so distinct. But about 2011 or so, um, you start playing out. Obviously, you do your first record, uh, An Awesome Wave. It's named after American Psycho, one of the greatest movies ever, right? Line in a Brett Easton Ellis movie. Um, so talk to me about kind of leading up to that point. And, and obviously that, that record went on to win awards and got nominated and whatnot. And so Talk to me about playing out at that time and, and all, you know, and what it was like kind of uh, leading up to that record for you. We did our first um, taste of proper touring in, in the beginning of 2012. We got put on the support, um, supporting an artist called Ghost Poet, who's a UK, I think he wouldn't say he's a rapper, but he's, I suppose, um, a, he's rap adjacent. And he, um, adjacent, we, <laughs> and then so we, we did the ghost poet tour and we also just supported the band wild beasts who um sure. i think they're broken up now actually but yeah then another sort of quite, wild beasts probably quite um a similar band of a similar sensibility to us actually but um they you know so we for the first time ever we had like a splitter van we had a tour manager we had a, a tech so we had darren the tour manager we had tim the tech um you know and we were suddenly just driving off around the country like doing proper actual touring it was absolutely incredible i mean I remember our, our manager bought us as a present, as a sort of first tour present, he bought us the Curb Your Enthusiasm DVD box set, which, so there was a DVD player in the van. So we just watched endless episodes of Curb. Well, By the way, my favorite show and the greatest day. show ever, so. Yeah, well, exactly, you know. <laughs> and that was, that was amazing, because actually we knew, I think, and then we knew we were going to go to LA for the first time. When, um, in May 2012, we went over to America to do our first American gigs. And we started in LA, and our experience of, um, LA. Well, our idea of LA was completely and utterly basically based on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like, <laughs> that was all we really knew, other than like Hollywood. It was Hollywood and it was Curb. And um, so we were just buzzing. And I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, Joe, we actually did get taken to a restaurant and we did see yes. Larry David. Yeah. Um, you probably went to Craig's because that's where I was at last night and that's where you see him. Where did you see him at? It's so funny. I think it was called LA Farm. Oh, okay. So no, yeah. not, not Craig's. Um, Anyway, it was very, very cool. And so, but you know, it was, it was that almost like that magical feeling of like, of course we're going to see Larry David because he's in LA everywhere, according to what we know. Um, and yeah, so we were touring. We were, you know, we were probably not very good at that point, but I think it was just so important that we just did so many gigs. And we, I think, you know, we, we obviously got better and better. And it was stressful um, on our first album tour, once, once the album came out in May, because we were suddenly doing bigger and bigger venues. You know, we... In, in let's say to use um, New York as an example, we did, uh, we started off at the Mercury Lounge then went to the Bowery Ballroom. Then I think we were at like, then we were sort of straight up to maybe Terminal 5. And then, you know, and so our manager was saying to us, guys, you've got to play for more than 45 minutes. You've got to play for at least an hour. These are big rooms. We were like, we don't have any more songs. We only have one album. So we were like chucking in covers, just like doing longer versions of the songs we had. Um, Singing slowly. Yeah, playing the most slowly, exactly. <laughs> what, what covers were you doing back then? Oh, my God. Um, what did we do, Joe? We did, a, we did a really iffy mashup. Do you remember that, Joe? Yeah, we did, uh, we, we did Real Human Being, which is on the yeah. dry soundtrack. I was going to say, I was, I was talking about the mashup of um, Dr. Dre and Kylie Minogue that we used to do. Oh. <laughs> Like such a hard thing to sing live because it was exceptionally high, and I didn't sing it falsetto. I sang it like with my normal voice, so uh, it was um, touch and go. I remember hearing yeah. something, Jay. You said you wanted the cover. It wasn't the Lion King. There was some 
Disney movie that you wanted to cover? Yeah, um, it's it's Mulan. Mulan uh, right, right, right. Exactly. It's, uh, exactly. I don't know what the song's called, but it's like, let's get down to business to defeat the Huns. Yeah. That was not in the set. No, I, <laughs> I would like to sing it. I just think it's a deep cut for part of the Disney catalog. It's a real deep cut. I mean, yeah. I don't know how successful Mulan was, but um, no one knows that song except me and my sister. <laughs> well, an awesome wave goes on to win the British Mercury Prize. Obviously, I would imagine that's a pivotal moment in your career. So talk about that and how important that was for the band at that point. Well, I mean, the, the, the Mercury Music prize was a, a, a prestigious award and um it would it was the dream I, I i it was the dream for me and I've, and and I, i'm sure for you gus to yeah. to be nominated let alone win was just it was a real it was it was the most validating experience i think of our career to date and it was so yeah. i was it I, I can only describe it as just pure euphoria when we when our name was announced it was just like it was like something was burning inside you and you were you were walking on stage and you were kind of sort of like almost like watery you were just so kind of overcome by kind of nerves and excitement and kind of relief and disbelief you were walking on stage and you're like oh, i've got to i've got to pull myself together and just like try and act normal and accept accept this award um from i think it was lauren Le was it Lauren Laverne? Yeah, Lauren Laverne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, we'd all been given suits by um, Top Man. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which was yeah. Um, it was quite funny because I think you know we we I think we felt at the time you know like we knew other artists like Jessie Ware was nominated the same year as us. I remember we saw her before the awards and she was like, oh, you know, she was like, we were she was like, what are you guys wearing? We were like, well, apparently we're getting some suits from Top Man. Top Man no longer exists really, but it was like a sort of yeah, very great. like was great, high yeah. street. Cool, but like very high street, you know, not an expensive, you know, a suit from, from Top Man probably costs about 200 pounds. Yeah. But, you know, still good, good to get them free. But, you know, Jesse was like, oh, you know, yeah, like I'm getting like a sort of tailor, like a custom made Mew Mew dress and stuff. And we were like, <laughs> well, we're going to be rocking the Top Man. And um, so I feel quite pleased that we won wearing Top Man. It's quite honest. And at that point, uh, Gwilin had not been in the band. And how did the dynamic change? For you as a band without him so we we so when we won the mercury Gwil was part of the band but um soon after um the end of touring the first album and when and when we began writing the second um he i i he kind of was just cashed in his chips mm. and for a number of reasons um he he kind of just said oh you know i, I don't think i can do this extensive touring this lifestyle is this is it's, it's it's crumbling away at me and so um it was hard it was hard but um also we didn't have much of a choice we couldn't it was like it was like it's like I, i've been watching band of brothers <laughs> uh, re-watching band of brothers the last couple <laughs> of days. and it's a bit like that you know your 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 best friend dies in the trench with you you can't stop and um mourn you have to keep on going and i think it was very much like that we had a bit of a survival instinct towards the creative endeavors that we were people were both expecting from us and we were kind of like excited to reignite so we we couldn't really slow down so we just had to carry carry on without him 
Was there some thought at, at a certain point of adding a fourth member again, or just kind of carrying on as a three piece? We did. Um, we did. Was it? Was it after? It's so weird. It feels like only yesterday that some of this stuff. But yeah, we did. We did take a fourth member on tour with us on the second album tour, and it didn't really work. I think um, he was a lovely, lovely chap. But I think that actually it was quite difficult for him and for us this kind of like dynamic of is he in the band? Is he not in the band? Right. You is know, he a side man. Just, yeah, it was a bit messy, and I think it, I think it sort of messed with all of our heads a little bit in the end. Um, so we actually, to be honest, we've we've embraced using a bit of backing track on stage, and I don't think we feel too much guilt about that. I think you know it's 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 something that everybody does, and actually we, you know, the, the show you put on is the show you put on, and for us it works best just having the three of us on stage. Definitely. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Obviously, we want to get into the new record, but before then, obviously, you were nominated for a Grammy. Incredible another Mercury Prize. So, so many pivotal moments in your career. I mean, what was, any highlights other than, obviously the Grammy well, nomination was huge for you too, right? There you go. What's, is that? Yeah. The, there you go. That's Grammy nom, yeah. I go out, I wear it. I wear Just it wear it to the grocery store, yeah. everywhere, right? I'm like, can I, can I pay with my Grammy nomination then? <laughs> to the pub. And they're like, for the, for the hundredth time, no. <laughs> Uh, I have a well, latte. Here's my Grammy nomination. Yeah, yeah. We won the Ivan Novello Award, which um, which was really good. I love so, how you have uh, all the awards there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Can I pay with my Ivan Novello Award? You should just carry them all around everywhere, on, wherever you go. On the contactless right. of. Like, oh, it's not working. Good. It's good for intruders because I mean it's genuinely very heavy piece of metal. You could, you could you could kill somebody with this easily. By yeah, the way, that, um, that would be a very Kirby enthusiasm moment if you just walked into every store carrying all your awards, <laughs> asking the paper things, right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I was going to keep the joke going. We've been lucky enough to play some amazing venues like um, like Red Rocks was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. we, we played it twice, twice actually. Um, so that's good. You know, it's funny. I, I played it. I played at Red Rocks. Uh, and I didn't know that it was very hard to breathe up there. So, you know, they have those yeah. oxygen machines yes. when you play yeah. there. And in between songs, I was like sucking oxygen. I'm like, it's so incredible and so amazing, but I, I can't breathe. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it, yeah. Really Being a sad. drummer, I can imagine that that would be a thing. Yeah, yeah. But what yes, an incredible yeah. venue, right? It's probably the, mm. the greatest, aside from the Hollywood Bowl, the greatest venue I've ever played. Um, amazing, amazing. But now you're playing venues like MSG, obviously the yeah. O2 Arena. So things are uh, obviously you're, we have the new tour coming up. So we'll talk about the tour dates and whatnot. But take me up to the take me up to the the present day here. Obviously, the new record is just that it's coming out February here, the Dream. Um, yeah. And it's been like four or five years since this record, uh, since this this new record's coming out. Why so long? Do you think? Obviously, the pandemic, and we can get mm. into that, but. Uh, do you feel like you just needed the time? I think you started working on the record right at the start of when the pandemic hit, right? Yeah, we did. I think we finished touring the last album cycle in the end of 2018. And I don't I don't know about you, Scott, but I think after doing extensive touring, you're quite depleted yeah. and you just need time away from constant travel. And you also, for me, I need time away from my instrument. Um, I need to sort of rebuild my relationship with my instrument. And I actually want to sort of spend time with family and friends and, and actually be in one place for an extended, extended period of time. So I think we put, um, we, it was like we quantified all of those feelings into deciding that it would be a year for us to just before we start writing again. 
And so we just gave ourselves 2019 off. And then when we when, when we came to 2020, we started writing in February and six weeks into writing the, the lockdown happened or oh, the pandemic came. And um, it just meant that we lived a life that was being on pause and play for the next sort of like year and a half, which was at first an inconvenience, but I think it really worked out in our favor. Um, I think a lot of the songs are a lot richer and uh, we've explored them in greater depth. So um, they've the maturity of writing, I think is 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 on show with, with this album. So um, yeah. It's an incredible record, by the way. Uh, Rolling Stone called it a masterpiece. Um, it's amazing. But when you started working on this record, this was this was done in your own home studio now, right? Because now you, you had this sort of house slash work live space, which you hadn't had before, right? So this new record was done and recorded in a different way than you did previously. Yeah, absolutely. It was really nice to actually finally do that. We Because we've always in the past tried to recreate that atmosphere of Kind of like when we were at Leeds, you know, sort of sitting around in someone's bedroom and 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 doing and writing music together. I think we've always felt that was a really nice way to work. So with um, album two and album three, we sort of found places in East London where we live to to work. But it was always difficult. There were always compromises. I remember like there was one place where there was always there was always a yoga class happening in the in the next room, and they'd always be like, "Can you stop playing? We're trying to do yoga." And we were like, <laughs> "Well, we were kind of like told that we could do music here, so mm, no." You know, and then there was a, on the third album, the place we found like the guy was always booking parties in the room. The guy who rented us the room would be like, oh, I've, I've got a party happening uh, here tonight. So can you move all your kit out? And like, we were like, well, hang on, you, you just you can't have double bubble, mate. Like we, we've paid for this room, you know, like, yeah, fuck off. So, we, um, wasn't there that one occasion where he took it upon himself to move all of our kit into the storeroom, locked yeah. the storeroom, had like a two day like wild one and um and then when we came to uh start rehearsing on monday the he didn't know where the key was and so yeah. all of our kit was kind of locked in to a to a yeah. to a storeroom and we didn't access it yeah yeah and we're paying so, so, for rental space it's like very frustrating so so we, were, so we were like okay on this album let's get somewhere that's properly ours so we found this lovely house in in um in northeast london and we we, we, we wrote there and then we, we ended up recording there too. We asked our producer, Charlie, to move all his recording gear in. And we had this lovely kind of setup where we'd, we'd kind of like spend a couple of weeks in the, in the writing room and then Charlie would come in and just record us. And then he, he, we'd do two weeks recording. Charlie would go away again. We'd write a bit more, come back, record. It was very healthy for all of us, I think. I mean, just a lovely work-life balance. And, um, no, you know, no one ever got sick of it because the studio can be really tough. It can be like being on a submarine, you know, you're stuck with a sort of, a group of men breathing the same air for yeah. weeks on end with very little natural light. I'm sure you know. So, um, you know, it, it was it was really really nice, basically. Yeah. And, and let's talk about a little bit. You and me. It came out uh, September 2021. It's almost like an homage to LA and California. There's skateboarding. Yeah. It's, it's sort of right, almost like a tribute to California. So, talk about the, the some of the singles that are coming out. Get better, and obviously hard drive, the latest single. You and me was. Um the first song that we um, approached on this new album, The Dream. And um, we contacted our front of house engineer, Lance Reynolds um, from Springfield, Illinois. And um, he had a list of uh, sound check jams 
and he sent them to us and there was one sound check jam normally like I'm, I'm i'm a bit of an archivist in my head i know all of the jams that we do and this was one jam that no one remembered including myself and it had this beautiful guitar riff it seemed like it was fully formed and then there was a really cool um chorus line and so we we all decided well why don't we why don't we start here why don't why don't we allow this to be the first track we write for this new album because we it's it, it has this energy that and also we we've in a way we've kind of discovered a song that we didn't know existed so we started there and i started writing the lyrics and the lyrics were about january the 1st 2020 i was at a festival and um i just had a really good time at the festival and so um i wrote about it and then in so about six weeks time it six weeks sort of like on from that writing period the pandemic happened so all of the lyrics took on this new um meaning of like the celebration of what was once normal and the kind of uh, the sense of recklessness and 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 fun and 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 um just sort of like an uncontrolled way of spending a day where you don't know what you're going to do but you end up doing something fun and and that was all seemed so far removed from the reality that we were um sort of like being thrust into well in a way the lyrics took a darker turn with what was reflecting in, in the life we were leading here right and so was covid obviously there's some other prevailing themes if you think about what we we're going through and obviously get better talks about you know covid and the, and the death of a partner right yeah, definitely. It's um, you know, it, it's not a song that's ex it's not a song explicitly about coronavirus and and the whole pandemic, but I think it's a very much a product of it. And you know, it's impossible not to read that song in the context of the year in which it was written. I think um, you know, we you know we don't often deal with um with kind of like current events and stuff in our songs. Generally, we tend to exist in a more kind of magical, imaginative realm. But I think it it felt only right to. To, um, to to make some reference to the year we'd been through and all the sacrifices and loss that the um, the country had, had had made and experienced. Let's talk about that. So you have the tour coming up, Portugal, the man, the dates were just announced. How are you feeling about touring now in this day and age? Obviously, you're excited. Because we spoke about the fact that you got a new suitcase yesterday. <laughs> so <laughs> you're getting ready. But uh, are you feeling apprehensive? Are you feeling great? I mean, I feel like hopefully by the time you kick off in about a month or so, and I believe the tour starts in the States and ends in Canada, right? Mm, um, yeah. Hopefully things will, will, you know, calm down a little bit out there. Yeah, it's exciting. It's super exciting. I mean, you know, I, I don't think you, Joe, you actually, you just went on a, a long trip to Australia over Christmas, but I mean, I've not left the country since 2019. So I'm absolutely buzzing just to sort of mm. um, get my passport stamped again and get on a plane. You know, I really can't wait. And I think also, you know, it's, it's you know, we, we've not really done our day job for so long. It, you know, it's, it's um, we've had a lovely few years being at home. It's been fantastic to catch up on sort of like life here, see more of our friends, you know, spend time with our families and, you know, our, our new families, Joe and I are both parents now. But, you know, at the same time, I think there is something quite psychologically damaging about not working. And I do mm. feel it in a way that like we haven't properly grafted as it were, at our day job for several years. And I'm, I'm excited to, to start doing that again, because when you're on tour, you feel kind of relevant. You feel like you've got a purpose as a band rather than just, you know, existing um, at home, kind of like, you know, I say I'm a musician, but, you know, I, I'm not playing a huge amount of music at the moment. Are you really? Uh, certainly not with my band. So, um, 
you know yeah exactly i, I want to kind of um get back out and um you know get my get my special bar flashing to use a tony hawk's pro skater 2 analogy <laughs> are there certain songs that you're really looking forward to bringing out hard drive is a great i think it'll be great live um hard drive actually talks about the cryptocurrency craze which mm -hmm. is going on at the moment um so very timely are you guys invested in crypto by the way i don't think no i'm, I, I'm not um, no no but it does uh, talk about crypto billionaires right it yeah, does. it's it's, it's a, about a boy, isn't it, Joe? Sorry. Yeah, it's kind of um, it's it's that childhood dream about being a millionaire, and and what better way to measure um, that elitist feeling than being at school, you know? Yeah. Uh, kind of turning up in a Ferrari and, and and being like the talk of the town and knowing that you're making, you know, thousands and thousands. No, millions more than your teachers. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's take, it takes that idea and then it's like it exists within this world that we live in at the moment where it's kind of this hysterical kind of approach to this guaranteed um, new way of making money, power to the people kind of thing. And um, and sort of all of the the darker sides of, 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 of human behavior attached to those booms like charlatans, like mis-selling, trying to create um, new currencies and actually it just being a way of making a load of money real quick and then just messing up messing over all the people that are invested in something that they think is going to have legs and it doesn't because it's just a it's con and so it's kind of sort of takes that you know uh, it's like a tongue-in-cheek uh, look at that world I wanted to ask you you know taking a page out of your own book I was checking out your Instagram if you just had four minutes what would you do that's a question that you posed on your Instagram lately Oh, yeah. Gosh. Well, I would. I'd probably watch the TV with my daughter. <laughs> I, Curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, I'd probably just put something on that would distract her, and I'd just watch her for those four minutes. <laughs> and guess mm. what about you? I'm just trying to think now. Um, I think you know, there's there's probably like a couple of bottles of wine that I've got in my house that I'm I've been saving for a very special occasion. So I suppose if I found out that you know that occasion was unlikely to come around i'd probably just um uncork one of those and um just just neck it straight from the bottle <laughs> and, uh, you know what better moment to drink that you know 2005 pomerol than than right now <laughs> definitely well make sure everyone check after say the tour kicks off in about a month or so the new record the dream's incredible so make sure everyone checks it out i appreciate you guys you guys are fun i hope that i get to meet you guys in person i like zoom but I, i'm more of an in-person guy and you can definitely yeah. get to see my Larry David sensibility since <laughs> you get to meet me in person. So hopefully when you come to L.A., I think in L.A. you're playing maybe the Staples Center here. Yeah, we are. Yeah, no, it'd be great to oh, meet. Yeah. Uh, Jim, 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 RPR will tell you that we're an absolute scream in person. You're going to love us. <laughs> and obviously Madison Square Garden, which is huge. So if I'm in New York, maybe I'll see you at Madison Square Garden. If not, Sounds maybe great. in L.A. I appreciate you coming on. You guys are great. Check out the new record. Alt-J, incredible band. Great to meet you guys. Thanks for coming on the show. I will see you soon. Thanks, Thanks Scott. Scott. Thanks, guys. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Well, that was awesome. The boys and all Jay. Gus Unger, Joe Newman, thank you for tuning in. And maybe one day we will hear them do Let's Get Down to Business from Mulan. Um, either way, what a great show. Truth be told, in the beginning, we had some technical difficulties. So I'm happy we were able to work it out. By the time you're listening to this show, 
uh, it would have been about a month or so since recorded. It was recorded around January 28th or so. And I think that they are already out on tour and the record should be out already. So thanks for tuning in. If you want to check me out on Cameo, please go ahead and do so. I am available. And if you like the show, please make sure that you tell a friend or a bunch of friends about the show. It's very helpful. I appreciate you tuning in as always and speak to you soon. Thanks again. Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.